It doesn't make sense from an ethical, logical, scientific, or economical approach to go with the chemical way. And why would we want a war against plants that are always there for a purpose of some kind? Your interactions in your community with the folks who are working on this organic agriculture movement and my interactions over here with the plant conscious artists who are also in solidarity with that movement are rippling through. You're listening to Our Shared Field, where we bring artists into conversation with people from outside of the arts. I'm your host, Austin Camille, and welcome to the last part of the conversation we began two weeks ago between artist and plant collaborator Ellie Irons and organics business owner Mike Sarant. Today, Ellie and Mike share their thoughts on what it takes to communicate the microscopic world of soil health and how the well-being of soil is connected to the well-being of plants and therefore to us as humans. We begin with the issue of communication, as that's where Mike's work as a business owner and Ellie's work as an artist intersect with urgency. I think that as an artist, a lot of what I'm doing is thinking through these questions in a kind of intimate fashion with collaborators um, and certainly, you know, in my own life and in my own head and then attempting to get those things out into the world. And there's a lot of ways that that can happen. And maybe this is a little rather self-reflexive here in terms of what we're doing. But I think this is one of those ways that we hope to amplify what we're doing is to go outside of our disciplinary silos. And instead of just communicating to like-minded artists who already are happy to sit with plants with me and try to understand them through the, the methods that we've come up with as artists on a, a day-to-day basis, just in my own life, I come into contact constantly with people who aren't thinking the way that I'm thinking, but if I can, just through my gestures and through my subtle and unsubtle ways of of showing that I I feel like plants are, and and by extension the soil and the microbes that we can't see are um, central collaborators and neighbors and cohabitants. That that's just like a daily responsibility that I feel like I have, um, and I hope that that ripples outwards. And sometimes it feels like very small and like we're not going far enough. And I think maybe Mike. Um, it sounds like you have a, in some ways, a bigger platform being, you know, a business owner. And I think sometimes I'm looking for small waves right around me in the community that I'm immediately engaged with and just trusting that it's a daily practice and I've got to keep doing it. Well, I, I think that that really is what organics is about. It's grassroots. And and I may have a, a business and I may have uh, an organization, um, but we're still really tiny um, in scope. And um, Scott's uh, makes a hideous product. It's a fertilizer. Actually, it's a pesticide with fertilizer numbers called uh, Scott's Bonus S. And they are the most successful lawn fertilizer herbicide company in America. And they will sell about $3 billion worth of this filthy product um, over the course of the year. And I'm sure, Ellie, that you detest any poisons going on to ecosystems. And what they have done is they have got people convinced that their life's going to be so much better if they have a sterile monoculture lawn. And they actually had a commercial. It's funny because it had to be effective because they ran it for a couple of years, but it's just stupid in its pretense but it goes um talks about clover 
being a plant that disrespects me. Clover knows I'm out there. And I can't have this clover plant disrespect me, right? So what's the answer? I'm going to herbicide, poison everything. And when you look at a clover, it's a beautiful little plant. Puts up a little pollinating stem, um, insects. It's a lagoon, fixes nitrogen. So Scott says we got to get rid of this. So, but they spend $300 million to promote this product. And they're successful. If you take all the organic fertilizer companies in the world and put our advertising budgets together, it's nowhere close to 300 million. So it's he who markets best wins. It doesn't make sense from an ethical, logical, scientific, or economical um, approach to go with the chemical way. And why would we want a war against these uh, plants that are always there for a purpose of some kind Austin and I were kind of teasing back and forth, I think, the other day that maybe uh, for weeds, for example, uh, they get a new press agent. And instead of calling them weeds, maybe we start calling them lawn herbs. And if we say that, maybe people think, oh, okay, well, right, herbs. I don't think I really want to hurt herbs, do we? So I think what Austin's doing, what you're doing, Ellie, uh, I think what we all are doing, small or large, it all has a, a, a very important role because organics does not have the government protection and it doesn't have the economic resources that the chemical bad food, bad medicine industry does. So it's, it's about winning hearts and minds. Yeah, what you're, what you're talking about definitely touches on something that I think is inspiring for a lot of folks in, in my network, which is this concept of emergent strategy. It's a book by Adrienne Marie Brown, and she talks about the kind of individual interactions at small scale and trusting that there's enough of us doing those things. So your interactions in your community with the folks who are working on this organic agriculture movement and my interactions over here with the plant cart conscious artists who are also in solidarity with that movement are rippling through and we're all kind of encouraging each other and keep holding each other to account in our small networks and that that is gradually rising. And I love that image of potentially eventually backing Bayer Monsanto into a corner where they've got their last little bit of fortification left and then it just all falls apart. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, that's an image I need to hold here (laughs) and hope for. And the lawn herbs potential too, I mean. Um, I call them weeds as a kind of act of resistance and saying I'm with the weeds, but I think that in certain, for certain audiences, reframing our friend Clover as a lawn herb could be very productive. (laughs) There's another friend of mine, he's uh, developed a concept called urban meadows. And so we, we can have meadows in our lawns. We just have to be accepting that it's not going to be one straight, turf grass crop and why are insects going away? It's two main reasons, loss of habitat, pesticides. And during the Trump administration, there was just so no regard for uh, environmental um, safety or, or intelligence. And I, look, I'm not a sage. These are just things I, I think about. One way that you can solve disputes, uh, whether you're a Trumper or a non-Trumper, you know, what, is, what do you have in common? What, 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 what do you really want? And I think what we really want, for the most part, unless you're one of these uh, greedy um, industrialists, is that we just want a happy, healthy life. And so I think that we can unite on that. You know, what gives us a happy, healthy life? Well, you know, a clean environment where we're not dealing with poisons. So you look at the work that Ellie's doing, and and she's trying to 
make this up close and more personal to people. I think there's something in us that calls for that. And we are, you know, we did not evolve in, a, in another time or place and then just come to this planet. We evolved with this planet. And, and uh, we were talking the other day about the common DNA that the three of us have about 60% common DNA with plants, all plants, which is pretty phenomenal. I mean, we are just flat out connected. We're connected to microbes and we have microbes inside our gut and 30% of those good gut microbes that are the number one determined in the way we think in our immune system, they come from the soil. So I think we're on the verge of something. I think there's still a lot of work to do, but we got a lot of hope. Both Ellie and Mike's experience is primarily in urban areas, and I was curious to hear their thoughts on fostering relationships between people and soil or plants in large urban areas that don't have a lot of direct contact with either. Yeah, I mean, I had a little thought related to that as you were talking too, Mike, because it's so, it really is so inspiring the amount that we're learning about in Western science, the amount that we're learning about how connected we are in the percentage of DNA that you mentioned, the ways that we're sharing breath, the ways that we're sharing all these chemical compounds that plants really are able to communicate with us. And I come back again and again to the long history of that in non-Western culture and the, the all the indigenous cosmologies that have always told us that that's what their way of interacting with the rest of the landscape is about. It's about being relatives and kin with the, the plants and the animals who support and that we're in constant relationship with. And in terms of an urban setting, I just keep thinking about how many people are deprived of the opportunity to experience that kind of connection because like you were saying, McDonald's markets and is also really cheap. So we come back to economics and the fact that um, in an urban setting that is often, I mean, we hear it described as a food desert. I've also heard it described as food apartheid to take it out of a natural metaphor. This is not um, a, a so-called natural phenomenon. We don't have food deserts because that's just the way it is. We have food deserts because of structural racism and structural inequality. And those spaces that have a lot of McDonald's are often the places that just like we're talking about, don't have soil or if the soil is there, it's either under concrete, obviously soil is everywhere, but it's under concrete, or it might actually very well be toxic, right? Yeah. So there's this, I mean, in terms of like fertilizer, organic fertilizers, what can we be doing to love this soil back into health? And how do we do it safely? And one of the things, one of the projects that I'm working on, it connects so well to your discussion of urban meadows, right? Is like, if we think about a place that has heavy metal in the soils, and doesn't have a building on it, maybe there used to be a building there, there is a rewilding landscape there, a lawn that's starting to grow back into a meadow, but it gets mowed again and again and again. And so the ground is really compact. And if we can connect with that landscape as a as an urban meadow and let it grow and be delighted that there's some bugs living there and start thinking of that as a place where folks in the neighborhood can experience some green space. I mean, it's a, it's a shift that I think is available, but we need a lot of other structural shifts too, um, in terms of more equitable distribution of all sorts of resources to give space for folks to, 
be able to enjoy an urban meadow in their neighborhood. <laughs> well, everything you say is absolutely on target, uh, very thoughtful. Uh, and there are countless studies where um, brownfields have been made into parks or community gardens and the amazing transformation that happens to community. And I think what Ellie's asking is some very deep questions and, and you can start small and maybe you can't change the whole community, but maybe you've gone from 5% of people to maybe 15% uh, that are now connecting. And I think that that's absolutely huge. Long ways to go, but I'm pretty encouraged. Likewise, I'm also definitely encouraged. I think I tend to offer up the ways that it's not working and the, uh, the big struggles that we have because I want to make sure that I'm attending to the kind of um, the justice-oriented aspects of it so that we don't further exacerbate inequality as we work towards this fuller space for thriving for everyone. The organic agriculture movement has so much to contribute. Um, and that I think that's what we, we need to grow it and grow it so that it really can scale in a way that it becomes possible to not have to put the saltines in the middle aisle, <laughs> right? You know, so that it doesn't have to rely on these cheap inputs of problematically produced corn, <laughs> right? And that we can center some of this amazing food that's being produced locally through the kinds of organic inputs that you're talking about that don't rely on this level of poisonous inputs, whether it's the synthetic fertilizers or the, or the herbicides. So um, yeah, I think the work needs to be done on so many levels. There's a lot of things we got to get back to. I think sometimes we've gotten into a mess, not because there was some grand cabal um, a century ago that said, this is where we want humanity to be in the year 2021. Um, I think a lot of times we try to do the best we possibly can. And, and Ellie made a very good point about uh, lack of selective foods, you know, what's available. Um, instead of having a very diverse diet, you, you go into a, a large supermarket and you go to the vegetable section and, and you say, well, I'm going to plate up 80% of my foods, always going to be plants and I'm going primarily fruits and vegetables. And after a while you go, what's the same thing? over and over and over again. So how do I eat those 23 different plant varieties? It's difficult, um, but you know, economic systems being what they are, uh, they're there in the marketplace because the growers do, and the distributors and so on and so forth, they find that that's a, what can make them money. But so maybe we've ended up with certain things. Um, the, and what's that one saying? Unintended consequences that we didn't realize what we were doing. Yeah, I think that's the systemic aspect of it. There's very few people who actually were <laughs> part of any cabal to choose to do things a certain way. We've got a whole system that's got a bunch of injustices built into it, and we're working to dismantle those. And you can pick your lens to work through, and your lens is organic amendments for making healthier soil to create healthier plants. And my lens is connecting plants and people in urban ecosystems as an artist. And we do our part. <laughs> nice. Very good. Yeah. Well said. After talking to Ellie and Mike individually, I wanted to delve a little deeper into their relationship with non-white, non-Western systems of knowledge. Ellie acknowledges indigenous cosmologies in her research, and Mike draws upon Japanese medicinal practices within his it felt important to talk about how they're situated in relationship to these systems of knowledge. I'm very curious to hear, um, Mike, about the 
influence of Japanese medicinals on on your thinking and practice. Um, for me, I, I am very introspective about my privilege and what I do with that privilege. So as a white woman in a settler colonial society who's getting a PhD, I feel like it's incumbent upon me to examine where my inspiration is coming from and what those influences are and who I might be overlooking. Who do you acknowledge as you share your ideas? In the Anishinaabe tradition, they actually invert. Um, the creation story says that um, humans are the youngest, which is also true in an evolutionary sense from a Western science perspective. Humans are the youngest and plants are our elders. They're our older siblings. And we are learning from them and they could be here on the planet without us, but we couldn't be here without them. And that without them, um, they could survive without us, but they would be mourning our absence, right? That's very interesting. Isn't that beautiful? And I think that it's incumbent upon me as someone with the positionality that I have and the ability to reach the folks that I reach to say that I'm inspired by that philosophy and I'm in solidarity with it. And I'm not of it. I can't be because I'm not indigenous to the place that I'm in, but that I have so much to learn from those folks who are and who have carried on that unbroken chain. And that because, especially this is another thing that I've heard indigenous scholars emphasize, like Kyle Powell's White talks about this, Indigenous communities in the United States have been through the apocalypse. And as we as a settler colonial society face the fact that we're going into climate chaos and we're going to need to adapt and change the way that we live on this earth, the fact that Indigenous communities have already been through the apocalypse, they've experienced genocide, they've come out the other side and are resurging, we have so much to learn. You're very well spoken, um, Ellie. I think... Um People a lot of times want to try to change the word organic. They want to say regenerative agriculture, mm -hmm. sometimes holistic, homeopathic, permaculture, and all that. And so a lot of times it's organic. What the way creation is, is that it's about diversity. And uh, you need diverse foods in your diet. And I think most people that once they get involved in organics, that they become humanitarians and that we don't look for strife. Um, I think we're very ethical and we're not weenies. We have a lot of courage. We stand up to things. We recognize that diversity um, is key. And I think organics uh, promotes that. And, and, and you're going back to indigenous cultures, the knowledge that our ancestors had, being able to read signs, read weather, I mean, that was critical to them. And so they had, I think, a lot of respect for nature. So, um, yeah, you're right, Ellie. It's, it is about, uh, if I think, I remember what you said, it's about respecting everybody, giving everybody an equal chance, treating everybody fairly, except those that are evil, um, and um, appreciating um, diversity, you know, encouraging that. That's the way natural law work. I don't know, uh, Ellie and Austin, you all open up such good ideas and questions and thoughts. A long ways to go. Right, obviously, a long ways to go. But uh, bottom line is, we're not going to give up. We're just going to keep going. And I think right now we're in, a, in a, an arena. Um, even if Trump had been elected, I still think the arena was moving um, into this more um, wiser way, more compassionate way. I don't think people want to fight. Uh, we just we want to have a nice, healthy, happy lives. So, and so I think we have more in common than we have not in common. Yeah. One of the things I'm interested in, in terms of that, um, the uniting, 
um, principles or tendencies across humans and going back to the idea that we all come from people who are indigenous somewhere at some point is that it hasn't been that long since we all had a more robust interaction with a huge range of plants and animals. And it's long in terms of a human life. I probably would have to go back five or six or seven generations, maybe farther in my family, to get to a point where the many different mixtures of <laughs> European um, in, in my heritage get back to a place where those folks were firmly rooted in the land. But in terms of human evolution, that's not very long. And those people, most likely in the place that they were in, knew how to identify 200 plus species of plants because they were their medicine and their food. And um, so I think that is very deeply embedded in the way that we process the world still. And um, whether it's the the kind of biophilia, the, the um, love for nature, there is comfort and restorative um, associations with being around plant life. And um, I think that's probably there to unlock for everyone. So I think, yeah, the work that we're all engaged in is, is partially just like unlocking that ability that's there in all of us. Um, and I've certainly found over the 10 or so years that I've been getting to know plants more deeply, um, that it really just tickles my brain and my soul. And well, biophilia, you don't hear that term very often, Ellie. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice one. Yeah. yeah, I don't use it that much either, but something about the what, what you were talking about made me think of it. It kind of brought no, it to me. It's the kind of love of other life and human life. Right. <laughs> if you're new to the podcast and want to learn more about Ellie and Mike, you can go back and listen to episodes 10 and 11 with their individual interviews. Our shared field doesn't end at the recorded audio. You can learn more about the guests and follow their interactions at chat.squarespace.com. Music for this episode is by Philadelphia-based Tioga the Band, a modern indie rock band born in Philly with roots extending to New York City. You can check out more of their work on our website. Again, that's chat.squarespace.com. Thank you to the Center for Humanities at Temple University for hosting this podcast and to our technical director, Eric Carbonara at Not A Sound Studio. This podcast is recorded in North Philadelphia on the ancestral lands of the Lenny Lenape people whose presence and resilience in Pennsylvania continues to this day. Join me next week to meet the first guest on our fifth conversation, immunologist Alex Soiree, who will be working with artist Charles Trey Mason III. This is around rush hour in New York City, and I remember that the tonsil was in this small styrofoam cooler that I was just holding on the subway, and I was like, oh my God, am I really doing this? Until then, I'm Austin Camille. Thank you for listening to Our Shared Field.